Welcome back to Explain Me, the year that wasn't. We're here with Ben Davis again, and we're discussing Disney Entertainment and Art Club 2000. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you said in your in your article, you said um, that, like, you compared Big Fun Art to, like, ice cream. And you were like, ice cream is not all bad. It's It tastes good. It's pretty, you know, it's fun. But, like, if you're only giving your kids ice cream, then maybe you got some problems. Um, and I was thinking about, like, um, sort of this, like, repackaging of things um, and... Like, I think like the more, maybe more popular um, example of this that I was um, talking about today on Twitter was that, um, you know, Disney had recently released like plans to do 5 million different types of Star Wars. And it seems sort of similar to the CBS All Access, All Access, which now has like every Star Trek known to man plus like all of the offshoots that they're doing. And like, you know, I don't think- where many men have gone before. Yes. (laughs) But like, you know, I don't know that I ever needed that much Star Wars. I happen to be a Star Trek fan. So I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. And if I'm in my ostriching, like, fantastic. I'm gonna go down that hole. But actually Discovery, in my estimation, especially this season, is amongst the best Star Treks made. So I'm, you know, I'm not that, like, it's not all bad. And I feel that way, like, if I'm thinking about immersive art, like, I have not seen this yet, so I have, I don't know, but I was thinking about, like, Rabbit Hole Gallery, which is, or the Rabbit Hole, I think it's just called the Rabbit Hole or something. It's in Kansas City, and it's an immersive library for kids. And- the, and if you talk, maybe this is because I've talked to the guy, but like he's an artist. He, um, oh God, much like Meow Wolf. <laughs> I thought it seemed really like potentially a very uh, powerful educational tool. I, yeah, I mean, but that's one of the uh, weird things. I mean, if you think about it, almost all European art that you study in, 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 you know, entry level art history is the pictures of Jesus. You know, it's, it's the, take the myth of the day, the artist yeah. puts spin on it. Um, it's a little bit weird that like now it's like these fabricated, you know, uh, mythologies that we're, we're dealing with and riffing on or that, um, you know, consumer, consumer mythology has replaced religious mythology as the thing that you riff on, but it's sort of a historical norm in a way the weird thing is thinking that everything that is the kind of like everything is hyper individual hyper hyper local but i i mean i think that i'm pro entertainment you know right i mean i think that people make a mistake when they're like oh my job as an art critic is to defend kind of a, a no fun zero calories version of artistic experience where you look at something and are edified and feel like you're a better person and that's the one and only function for art um that's a function for art but like entertainment's good you don't want to put yourself on the wrong side of 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 these things let me there's also like yeah there's a way that you can surf on top of these conversations if you 
if you get them right, where you can like use a conversation that's happening in a dumb space in order to introduce more people to smart things. That's true. That's what museum directors will always say is that it is a way, it is a gateway drug to, to art. I mean, as it plays out, the pressures tend to like consolidate things and push people more and more over to just the, the junk food portion of it. But yeah, I was going to say it is it, like that mentality assumes that people are curious to begin with. I mean, that most people are not. Well, yeah. yeah, most people are not, most people are not. And, and, you know, and I, like I said uh, earlier that there's a this big distinction between what art professionals think they're doing and what the public wants from them. The art professionals thinks that they're providing edification and intellectual and moral leadership and that that's the role of the museum. Um, and the public, when you ask them, the majority of them are like, I would like a place of distraction and fun um, where I could take my kids and I'd like it to be beautiful. <laughs> it's all the really tab taboo like stuff that, you know, um, and um, like, I think that it, it's hard to have both. It's, I mean, it's, like, again, this is a contradiction that is a lot bigger than what individual institutions or, or curators do. Um, if we live in a different kind of society where people had a lot more free time and, you know, a lot more room to, a lot more help with the kids and a lot more, um, a lot more, uh, you know, we're under a lot less pressure. The world was much less stressful, you know, so you didn't feel like you wanted to ostrich all the time. Then, you know, that would produce a different kind of cultural climate, but we live in the, the conversation in the, in the world we do. And so it's like, there's, a question of like what's of like how you, you how you mediate these pressures that's all you can do you can mediate these pressures figure out what they are figure out what the tensions are what the what you know and what you what you really want you know um and how you can like hack the conversation to 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 use it in a certain um kind of a way for a certain kind of an end um i mean as a writer as a you think about this all the time because like there's the, the stuff that the stuff that I spend the most time on, no one reads, and the stuff that I spend the least time on, where it's literally like, oh, everyone's talking about the Utah monolith. Do you have anything to say about it? Like, it, it took me that that post took me less than two hours to create. It'll probably be one of the most read things I did this year, and it was like syndicated around the world in different languages, <laughs> you know, without through nothing, through no, you know, effort of my own. <laughs> you know, people just. And, 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 and not to the, I, I, I think the point that you made about the work being anonymous is should not be dismissed. Um, I thought that was sick. Nobody else had made that point yet. I, I, is the work still anonymous? There was a collective, like the greatest artist in the world or whatever, who claimed authorship for it. Um, I haven't been following it because the monolith story doesn't interest me that much. Yeah, no, um, if I, 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 I'll, I'll touch back in with it, but there, there are more important things and, you know, there, there are more consequential, um, um, you know, serious, uh, conversations, you know, like, it's like a 3000 people dying a day in the United States. Um, and there's like, you know, uh, mutual aid to be organized and so on. Okay. But, this but, is, but you can't just be the person reminding people of how bad things are. Yeah, well, here's one thing. I'm gonna... Lots of venues to figure out how bad, like there's, there's, there's plenty of places where you can read the news, you know? You don't need to go to the museum to read the news. The museum can tell you serious things about how bad the world is and 
but it has to offer something a little more than that, right? Because otherwise it's just like, oh, this is just a boring way to process the news. And that's what happens. Like there are studies on how you convince people of a point, you know? And it's like, oh, it needs to be timely. It needs to be in a language that's familiar to people. It needs to be not too uh, difficult to process. It, and it needs to treat their audience like they're smart and not like tell people they're stupid for whatever they, for being on the other side of whatever you're trying to convince them of. Art is bad at all of those things. It's never, it's never the first thing, it's never the first Weird. response to any issue you get. It's always like, it's, it's, it's constitutionally indisposed to being, um, okay, but can we, to can meeting we, people where they are because it's all about developing. Uh, can we, can we talk about Star Wars and Star Trek for a second, just because <laughs> to get away from the museum, right? Which is a very limited audience. And we're, we're, we're talking about this kind of like, idea that you know entertainment does have a lot of content and there is a lot of sort of important things happening into it but there is the sense of what happens when it's like one company like disney telling a lot of people huge audiences uh starting to embed kind of political narratives you know whether it's the kind of it's a i, I think you know a lack in cultural criticism right now is a serious examination of the politics of shows like The Mandalorian or even Star Trek, right? The new discovery thing happens in the future where the Federation has fallen apart and what happens when it's all war and no diplomacy. Or in the, the you know, spoiler alert on the new Mandalorian episode, there's a, a whole lot of both sides-ism happening in that one. There's like embedded jokes about the pandemic, like somebody takes a mask off and someone else says, doesn't it feel better with it off? You know, like, are you talking about pandemic masks? Or are you talking about, you know, so there's this kind of both sides is happening or there's literally like the politics of, of, of a rebel making friends with a former empire soldier, you know, that it's possible for somebody to change their mind in our completely binary divisive political climate. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, and this is all caught up with certain actors on the TV shows voicing different opinions and almost potentially getting canceled from their shows. But I do think there's a lot of, of important sort of like political ideas being conveyed in these shows. They might be embedded and sort of implicit and not outright, but they're appealing to both Republicans and Democrats. Well, but not with Discovery. I mean, I think like the interesting thing about Discovery to me is that I, I I literally don't think that a conservative could watch that show for longer than five minutes and not turn it off. Like the whole thing is like, they, they, it is like the whole thing is about diversity and like that sort oh, of part. Of, There's the Terran universe with the Trumpian figures, you know? Oh and, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying that there's not, I, I mean, there's also problems with the way they represent people, but like, you know, I think like the impetus is at least good. Yeah, well, they're, they're trying to have it to be. Let me just say what I, this is something I haven't really thought through, but I, when you say that there's a lack in culture of discussing the politics of these shows, I feel the exact opposite. I think there is a surplus in culture discussing the politics of these shows, that there's an entire industry of explainers and recaps and like pop versions of cultural studies criticism, where it's just like unpacking the minutiae and Easter eggs of these things as like the deep political significance and where they sit in the conversation. And that is almost the way that um, 
a certain kind of audience, certain kind of relatively affluent college educated audience consumes popular culture right now. It's like, and that is like, where does it sit within like the themes of the world? And I am not convinced. And I, I don't want to retreat. I don't want to say it doesn't matter at all because I think it clearly does matter. Um, you know, representation matters. Um, but like, I'm not at all convinced that it's like matters as much as people think it does. I think mainly culture comes behind like other things. I mean, people tend to treat, you know, for instance, the question of um, diverse casting in, 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 in these things as like very important symbolically heavy. Um, and I would not, you know, I, I do think it's important, but is it leading a conversation or is it like they have a, they have done market research that's like, oh, you know, these kind of people like our products and we need to fully represent them. I think it's more that. And I think that that's important to acknowledge because it's part of the reason people are so cynical when museums, for instance, make these gestures that they're like, they know that they're speaking as if they're leading a conversation, but everybody knows that there's a pre-existing conversation that museums are having about the need to develop an audience in the future. <laughs> that, that there are cynical reasons behind these things. And, and, and so you're saying one thing, but you're actually acting on another. I, I think that the culture more follows and you need to like, just start from that position and not overestimate how important, you know, like um, whether or not some science fiction show takes a stand against Trump. I mean, I just don't think that that, that is that important. I, I'm very aware that there's a whole lot of writing about these shows with little recaps and that, you know, there might be some minor effort to untangle the kind of uh, political narratives within it. I. I'm thinking more of like, what is Disney's position on developing its audiences? And I guess I'm looking for an, an actual critical reading of the TV shows, not a kind of like, let's appeal to the audience and keep them interested in. I just remember- but What does this mean? You know, like- I just remember like, 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 level. like 10, 10 years ago, um, you know, uh, you know, in, in, in the socialist circles I was part of, you know, people having these conversations about like, oh, you know, like, um, is is the Batman movie a fascist movie? You know, is, is, it, is the Avatar movie an anti-imperialist movie? And like, you know, compared to the other things that people would um, debate, you know, the, these conversations would take up tons more space. You know, the kind of conversation about outer politics, and it's like, does a mass audience like does it? Is Batman's popularity mean that there's like? fascist streak in US. I don't think so. I think it's just a mixed object, you know, people process it. I don't know. I don't know. There's 74 million, 70, 74, whatever, you know, million Trump voters. Everyone's freaking out about the number of people voting for Trump. You know, I, I don't think it's easy to just write that off that the differences between the, the politics of Marvel, which might be marginally more progressive, um, don't matter to like DC or that that Warner Brothers appeal to a kind of more fascist fascist tendencies of Batman characters or like the Zack Snyder universe of this. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I think it's more of an indicator of something that's happening than it is like a uh, a leader. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think, for instance, that if we focused all our fire onto you know like let's make uh, you know let's uh, let's make Batman less fascist. <laughs> 
you know, and then that happened. I don't think that, I think it'd be a waste of effort. <laughs> I'm going to float an idea here that I don't, I don't know if, it, if this will hold up. So somebody will tell me if it's wrong, but like, I kind of feel like a lot of that, like heavy intellectualization of like TV shows, um, to my mind, like that seems like a very kind of 90s thing that like the mix of pop culture, like high and low culture was suddenly a thing that like came together and like serious intellectuals could de dedicate serious time with that. And at this point, like it's kind of, I, I do feel like there's an industry like that exists around that. Um, but I, 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 I think like I might be more interested in like something that I think the art world doesn't really have a real analog to, um, at least that I'm aware of, which is like the fan culture that seems to exist around these things. And also the academic language that um, around this that, um, you know, I think there's been some discussion about I mean, I guess it could be applied to a lot of things, but like this idea that like, if you can kind of like work in the margins or like, um, like that's where real real change can take place. Um, and um, sort of imagining whole different worlds is a kind of, it's a kind of empowerment. Um, and that's where I guess I'm wondering, like um, it's a, like, whether there actually is that empowerment there, because I feel like that is something that has kind of consistently failed us. This idea that like through a rejection of a certain, um, like certain norms that, and, and sort of situating ourselves outside of that, that we can somehow create change where, you know, I haven't, I'm just, I haven't seen that. Well, I mean, the reason why that doesn't exist in art, though, the intellectual language, is that the kind of, um, the kind of, uh, you know, pop culture blogging thing is uh, kind of a popularization of cultural studies. Um, and cultural studies as a discipline emerged in the 70s, specifically in opposition to high culture. I mean, like, it's not, it's, it's very, very, that like a previous generation of academics and leftists and scholars focused on high art as, you know, edifying and improving to people and like, oh, okay. we, have to do, we have to get the working people Shakespeare. You know, we have to get the working people opera. We have to get them abstract expressionism. And um, after the um, 60s, um, when people were kind of in the 70s kind of sorting through um, in England, Thatcherism and the decline of the, the failures of the 60s to really like deliver the goods, you know, one of the assessments was, well, we didn't engage in the cultural steps. We didn't understand, you know, the importance of youth culture to, to, to forming the political consciousness of the baby boomers. And so there was a, you know, academic discipline that came up. It was specifically like, specifically like turning away from elite culture as a as an avenue of intervention towards like popular culture as a place where, you know, consciousness was formed. Um, and then, you know, by, you know, I think really it was the kind of gawkerification of media that, you know, you had like college educated people, several generations of cultural studies in its various forms. Um, when I graduated from college, I very specifically went into art writing because I was like, 
I studied philosophy and cultural studies. Art is the one place that takes that seriously, you know, where you, where you can turn these ideas into some kind of material practice. It was like evaluating, evaluating um, these intellectual objects. But a generation or, you know, 10 years after me, there's an entire web media ecosystem that is specifically catering to an audience that has um, studied popular culture and film and so on in this way. And is familiar with these ideas about like culture as the area of intervention that that's an industry there to um, that's waiting to like activate those kind of languages. Even in the, in the, in the eighties, Cobana Mercer, who was one of the fathers of cultural studies was saying, you know, like cultural studies has become an arm of, of the culture industry and a way to provoke culture consumption. And that's become a thing, you know, it's like the people make shows to a certain extent to be blogged about. And um, I think for me, the importance is like, if you go back to the genesis of that, it's like this disillusionment with high culture turned towards popular culture. That's again, a part of the neoliberal process of the, 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 the like, we, we, the, the working class thing isn't working anymore. Um, and we need a new avenue of intervention. That's going to be culture. It's going to be popular culture, specifically um, industrialized um, culture. And so that within this idea of like treating cultural objects, popular cultural objects as these texts of resistance, there's embedded this politics. It's that's like, you know, culture has this certain kind of agency. It's where struggle for consciousness is done. And I, I, th I guess I, I'm a little, I'm not like a mechanical Marxist based superstructure guy where the superstructure is not real and the base is real, but I'm enough of that like, I think there's enough, there's some truth in the idea that there are more or less important areas of intervention that right now things are way too pushed towards culture. Um, and I don't know, that, that makes it kind of difficult as an, as an art critic, <laughs> because like an entire perspective is like oriented on these specific kinds of objects. But nevertheless, yeah, I mean, so a lot of, when I look at something the way I think about writing about it is, is very specifically like, oh, I'm taking that conversation and turning it inside out. You know, I'm trying to look at the limits of, of this object or cultural objects um, agency in the world. Let me just ask one question about there's this parallel, right? We, we talked about earlier the fact that, you know, there's a kind of consolidation of fine art at the top level of the market where you have Gagosian, Werner, Hauser and Wirth representing more and more the blue chip artists. And they sort of tell the public, this is what matters and this is what is valuable in contemporary art. And we may disagree with that. And we know there's a much fuller picture of, of production of culture, but the top has a certain amount of visibility and cachet and creates our stars. On the other side of the pop culture divide here between high and low, you have Disney buying Fox, owning the Star Wars franchise, owning the Marvel franchise, these have huge audiences with people and they're the ones telling the stories. They're the ones who are embedding their kind of political perspectives that are very neoliberal, little both sides, Captain America's, you know, uh, stands for some sort of ideal and Tony Stark is your, you know, Andrew Yang, whatever genius figure. Um, but, you know, they, they have a lot of authority and there's this sort of commonality of consolidation and around bankable things that are not necessarily about originality, but kind of selling things that are appealing either to an elite collector base or to lots of people who want to buy tickets. And that, that, that is a common effect happening 
across both these areas of cultural production, elite culture and pop culture, um, is this kind of concentration of intellectual property on some level. And that they're both influential in different ways. And that, you know, I guess I'm interested in a criticism that is going to respond to, to that effect, not just the content of it, or is it a site of in intervention for real the, political change? The prestige of it? Um, the, the fact that there is this consolidation, you know, that you have oh, yeah, yeah, major yeah. franchises, you know, owned by one corporation or a handful of galleries or Meow Wolf metastasizing into a national, international chain of boutique shows. And that we're just, there's, there's fewer people who own the stories, who own the intellectual property, and that it's delivered to more people. Well, the know. thing is about that, and I mean, I'm sort of make this point in the state of the culture essays that like, again, like with Disney, for instance, yeah, let's start with Disney, um, that like, Okay, so Disney is, you know, the, is like this mega powerful, you know, international uh, conglomerate that is just towers over culture and owns everything you love as a child, all the, owns all your childhood memories. But this, the, the Star Wars, you know, Pixar, um, Marvel strategy is a sign of their weakness, not their strength. It, it, like that there the way image production has become extremely democratized it's extremely easy to make indie kinds of stories um it's, it's there's tons of meme culture that, that that's the culture of the youth young people a young generation is engaged with i mean people um when they ask young people you know for a role model or or the celebrities they admire most it's 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 influencers and youtubers it's not celebrities anymore I mean, no, they become celebrities. This, yeah, but but the point is, is like they're not becoming idols and role models by being on TV or being on in a Disney movie. Um, although, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, like the point is, is that they um, they're emerging in social media, and then the cachet they built there is like harvested by these corporations. And the point is, is like the strategy of them buying up the intellectual property rights to Star Wars, buying up intellectual property rights to Marvel is a defensive strategy where they've got to like create an intellectual property moat around what they do. So it's like only they can produce Star Wars movies. It's something that only they can do. And that um, gives them an, an edge in the market, you know, in a market that's extremely competitive that hardly anybody goes to movies anymore. Movie attendance is declining. Um, um, for a long time, the only thing people go to movies for is blockbuster experiences before the pandemic. Um, stuff that you have to see in the theaters. Everything else, like your romantic comedies, all this stuff, that's going to Netflix. So like, so like it's a defensive strategy. It's, it's, it's the, the intensified emphasis on branding is a, is, is, is a defensive strategy. It's something that happened in the United States under conditions of globalization, you know, where like products were, you know, um, increasingly being made very cheaply overseas and then you still need to create like high margins. So, you know, Nike becomes a branding corporation instead of a shoe corporation, you know, because, you know, you need to like intensify the investment and this is a unique individual object because in actuality, they're, they're extremely cheap objects anybody can have. And, and so, 
I think that's the more the way I see it. I mean, that, that we're in a time when, um, you know, culture is, uh, extremely unsettled and, uh, and culture is actually extremely weak terrain, even, even at the very top, you know? I'm just wondering, like, I, I'm, Again, like I, I'm um, just sort of trying out these I, these thoughts, so I don't know. Yeah, ripping and popping. But there, so it's interesting to me this idea that um, this is a de- defensive strategy, and I guess I was trying to figure out whether I agreed with that because I think that, um, you know, if you think about how search works on the internet, one of the things um, that is a known bias is that you have to know what you're looking for to find it, right? Um, But that, um, so if you know about Nike, if you know about Star Wars, if you know about these things, and then they also like, um, particularly if we're talking about um, culture and the sort of disappearing and like ostriching, like these things of the past give us some comfort because they're stable, you know? um, But I'm the, the sort of, um, I guess the, the opposite of that, if we're talking about, you know, a brand versus an influencer, right? Like you don't have to, you don't necessarily, you don't have to know an influencer to find one because the algorithm does it for you. Right. So, so like, are we, is this like a sort of, Maybe it doesn't have to be an either or, but I keep thinking about like the sort of the weight of that of the brand versus the weight of the algorithm, and which one kind of um, works, which one kind of wins out because I, and they're not entirely separate because of course the brand um, sort of works with the juice up algorithm anyway, but like um, and that's kind of why a brand works in the first place is that like an algorithm is going to sort of sort that out first, but I don't know where I'm going with that. I feel like, I feel like they're, they're really, really connected though, because, because I watch a lot of film YouTube. Like, I mean, it's something I actually think our criticism is way behind on, Um, but actually not even, I mean, actually what I'm about to say kind of explains why our criticism is way behind on it, which is like, there are a lot of really good essays about film on YouTube by like really smart people, like critics I admire. Like, I, I like, I like the way they think, you know? And um, I think they have important things to say about film. But if you watch enough of it, you notice all of those film YouTubers complaining. And it's like, I can't make a video about anything besides Marvel or Star Wars because the algorithm selects for it. Like the algorithm sort of things. Like if I make a, a, a video about the Florida project, you know, if I make a video about, you know, obscure 80s arty, art, art, art movies, the algorithm penalizes me for it. Because like, um, it's, uh, you know, power law distribution of, of attention, like the, the rich get richer, the things that already are, are established conversations inherently accumulate more and more and more of the attention under under these under these things uh, under these regimes and um, and so so I guess like yeah so like again I mean like even Dis- so Disney like 
world's most powerful media con conglomerate, like its entire strategy is this defensive reaction to like, like we can't make money of anything that there's not a pre-existing com cultural conversation around. Like we need to have like this running, like everything. And that's why, you know, the, the cultural innovation of the last, um, of the last, uh, uh, 10 years was the the kind of Marvel shared universe idea that these movies are no longer freestanding things, but they're just kind of like soap opera, like interpenetrating universe. But I wrote that I wrote just last, last year, I wrote a monograph for like a very famous comic book artist from the 1980s. So I was studying a lot of the history of 1980s comic book art. And it's like the entire crossover universe thing, although that was always part of comics to a certain extent, but the kind of like event crossover things like the, your secret wars, your crisis on infinite earth, where it's like, <laughs> you know, you have to drop whatever you're doing in, in, in individual storylines and like read this one mega story that forces you to buy, you know, like Superman and also Green Lantern, also Flash Nerd to get all the pieces. That came out of the 80s when comic book sales were declining and they had to come up with a strategy in order to like, you know, draw in the audience in a new kind of way. And that's the exact same thing that's happening right now. These are defensive strategies. It's okay, like, we need to figure out a way to get people to be part of a running conversation about- Right, but they're still like, they're still accumulating money. I, I, yeah. I hear your point, and but audiences. Like, I'm wondering like whether- But this one company is accumulating money. I'm wondering if this distinction is even meaningful, but is this a point of weakness? Like, do we call it a sort of almost cultural weakness or like, a, you know, rather than uh, something that is specific to a company that, while it may have a defensive strategy, is still making a bazillion dollars. Yeah, and I just want to say, like, I I have, on a very sort of personal level, one text thread that is now entirely devoted, essentially, to The Mandalorian and developments within the Star Wars universe. <laughs> otherwise, you know, artists, intellectuals, you know, creatives, and it has a particular tone. It is a fan thread. There is not a critical analysis of like anything that's sort of happening around this or what does it mean for Disney to be in a defensive position. It is, it is, it is people who love unpacking the Easter eggs. Any politics that sort of come through it um, are a little bit questionable. I have some questions about what people's positions are based on what they like or don't like within this thread, but it's not necessarily even discussed. Um, but it's like this audience, it's not, this isn't dependent on the algorithm. This is, you know, Disney building sort of huge audiences that, you know, people get deeply invested in. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know what it means yet, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of interested in it that like in my adult life approaching 45, there is a text thread dedicated to a Disney show, you know, with like a baby Yoda, you know, like, and people talk about it every day and they're going to be talking about all the offshoot shows that sort of come out. They're very excited, you know, and I, I don't know how I found myself. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. At least I, I do, like, I, I feel like, I mean, I've been using the conversation made as like cultural inflation. Like, I think we're in a cultural hyperinflationary period where it's like, you know, everything is a reference to a reference to a reference. And that means the meaning is like thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And, uh, you know, I kind of think that, you know, there'll be some kind of, uh, you know, I just can't, I just don't think that that can last. Um, ultimately, I think, I think, 
I think, um, you know, the, the new stuff will pop up around around the margins. And the nightmare is if Disney decides and, and, to do the crossover with Star Wars and Marvel. You know, we get to the third cycle. Like, you know, when you have... Well, this isn't a side, but there's, you know, there's a Patton Oswald Star Wars filibuster from Parks and Recreation. You should watch that. In any case, the point is, is that, like, to bring it back to art, because I don't think necessarily, um, you know, art's very, you know, the... I think it behooves us to try and define, <laughs> to define, you know, what art does in relationship with these kind of conversations. Is that like I do think that like art ideally should be one of those places. the 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 danger of the mega gallery consolidation thing you're talking about is that art should ideally be one of these places. Is that it replicates the kind of blockbusterization of everything when like art structurally because it's like individual people making stuff like that's inherently kind of like on the more personal and local end of things. It should be the, the counter pull to that kind of like, and for the longest time, that's how it was conceived. And where, where, where some of those conversations about, you know, like new forms of meaning can, can pop up. And the domination of big money and the domination of kind of like gallery, mega gallery brands kind of for, prevents, that from, prevents that from happening because it kind of like sits like a big weight on all the, on the art scene that prevents it from, you know, developing the kind of little conversations that become more weighty, um, more weighty, you know, alternative forms of culture. Um, you know, I think we had, um, you know, in the conversation about like what gets talked about um, and what doesn't, like in the, the Marvel world and like these like other smaller things, like, one of the things that um, we had brought up in the notes was your review of um, uh, Art Club, um, which was uh, relatively recently, recent, like you um, reviewed that, what was it, like a couple days ago, Art Club 2000. Uh, and like, that seemed like a, like sort of, a historical show to an artist space, like really um, important work. They, they worked in the sort of 90s through aughts, I guess. And like, you know, I think I had expressed some concern that like, this was sort of a very thoughtful, like um, both show and review by you. And I, you know, it seemed like the kind of thing that also might get missed, um, you know, um, William and I had a list of shows that we'd seen. We'd both seen the Donald Judd show at MoMA because it's at MoMA. I personally think that show looked no better than a yard sale. Yeah. You know, like it, I, it was, it's not even Instagram friendly. Like I can't, like all the things that could be wrong with it were wrong with it. Um, but whereas like, um, you know, Art Club 2000, like, I, I feel like I knew about that because I went to um, a press preview that they had basically a year ago planning for this. Um, so I was already pretty psyched about it, but I don't know, you know, outside of the work that people like you do, um, you know, how many people know about this? Gosh, I don't know either. I mean, I know, you know, they're, but that's, that's, that's fine though. I mean, I, I've never heard of Art Club 2000. I mean, maybe it's a gap, you know, certainly in my knowledge, but this was literally like, oh, I 
didn't know they existed. Yeah, I mean, I think that are there, I mean, just for folks who don't know, there's like a group of Cooper Union students who in the 1990s created, were, were created essentially as kind of like an invented collectivity by Colin DeLand, who was a, who was a sort of a commercial dealer, but an alternative commercial dealer. Um, he actually went on to co-found the Armory Show, which shows you how fast like anti-capital becomes capital and all this stuff. But, but they were a group and they kind of like created um, this very playful, almost like uh, boy band or something style of, of art collective where they kind of, a lot of photos themselves posed together and a lot of commentary or, or jokes, jokes, installations about the commercial culture of their day, of the, of, the, of the kind of Gen X cultural touchstones that you'd be familiar with from the 90s. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of 90s nostalgia right now. Um, maybe even we're at the tail end of 90s nostalgia and it's verging over to 2000s nostalgia, um, which makes me feel very old. But, um, but it's, it's interesting, you know, I think 90s nostalgia has a certain kind of character where it's like, um, you know, the, the 90s is really a decade where the US was like the end of history decade. And, um, you know, uh, I think to people now, the 90s feels very kind of like charmingly low stakes in a lot of sense, particularly the mid 90s, late 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah, that reminds me of Christopher Poe's essay on the Clinton crowd, you know, writing about like the resurgence of abstraction coming out of, say, Bushwick in the, the early aughts and mid aught, you know, teens was in part because it was from a generation of people who grew up in a time that to them under Clinton felt, you know, the political stakes were quite low, you know, if you were uh, or yeah, the Clinton crowd, I think is what he sort of called it, you know, and maybe there's a, a corresponding generation to the kids who grew up under eight years of Obama, you know. Um, well, that doesn't really come through in my review, but that's an interesting thing about Art Club 2000 as far as I'm concerned that they, um, they are Cooper Union students, so they're studying with like really critical people, like they're studying with Hans Hacke and Julie Ault and, uh, and uh, Douglas Crimp, you know, people who are rooted in like the, the 70s, you know, the Art Workers Coalition in the, in the 70s and in um, AIDS activism, which often like very, took the form of collect, art collectives. So like the critical art tradition, they're like embedded in that. And um, they get going around 1993, which yeah, is like in the art world is really remembered for like 1993 Whitney Biennial New York, which is really focused around like mm -hmm. issues, racial justice and and um, identity politics, and was coming out of the the um, the Rodney King uprising in, in in Los Angeles. Like, there's a very political conversation that's going on. Um, and you know, in the bigger culture, you've got like uh, gangster rap, you've got like grunge, you know, all these things that capture the texture of the um, into the Reagan era. Um, and the recession of that time period, which was, um, which was pretty intense, but that's also the year Clinton comes in. And like, I think I would say that the nineties for people is really Clintonism. Mm -hmm. And so our club 2000, you know, in their early stuff, they're kind of like, it's an interesting conversation 
that happens there's like this kind of really weird moment where they like appear and it's this kind of playful riff on on um, art collectives and generational branding and and really the idea of how corporations are using disaffect like the disaffected cool of like of like gen xers um as a branding strategy you know there's in what in the show there's actually a close-up of one of the documents of from the gap the gaps corporate manual where it actually has this line talking about how um their workers should respond to people if they bring up the la uprising or <laughs> the recent hurricanes and it's like it's 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 like it's like a a preview of like all the conversations about performative corporate speak you know mm. and they're really really they're like thinking about how the gap is like is like turning processing like criticism into branding um but then i actually think i'm not totally sure of this but i think what happens is that they appear and they're kind of writing this ambiguous line which kind of is what makes the group interesting in, in a certain way where they're both you know, like aware of how um, this kind of post posture of youthful uh, disaffection gets branded, but they're also kind of trying to inhabit that role. And I think a lot, they get a lot of flack, I think, for not being critical enough. And then I think the entire rest of the show, you kind of see them trying to be more serious. <laughs> they're like, no, we're a really serious art collective. In a way that actually is pretty almost identical to what happens with something like Dis magazine. You yeah, know, I was gonna start say, out as like riffing on internet culture and then people are like, oh you're you're just, you know, you're just uh, you're just kind of like surfing on top of um of of tech and then they they become, you know, you know, they turn to more serious themes. Um and they're and, curating uh, the Berlin Biennial and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, they reading your review, they seemed like a precursor for K Hole and their norm core, you know, trend forecasting stuff. Uh, yeah, sort of absolutely. Absorbed I mean, into so, the corporate landscape. It is so um, similar in a way, you know, it, and that's and without, I think, it being a specifically intentional echo. So, I mean, that's what's one of the another interesting thing about it is like, I do think the 90s are kind of the primal scene for a lot of the present, you know, like the 90s is when the mm. political correctness, for instance. Um, yeah. became a really big thing and then that's the, the last four years is like this very intense conversation about about um, political correctness and cancel culture and so on and um, and uh, and similar to the 90s um, a sense of like a new generational sensibility appearing um, this this might be a really interesting it's really funny to say like it is it is it is it is, you see these strategies of artistic um, collectivity and kind of appear that um, are at once conscious strategies, but almost kind of like, almost kind of just like channeling energies from the larger culture and the way that larger culture is like putting an emphasis on youth culture, on youth on youth and political disaffection in a way that makes it visible to people who are part of that culture. You know, you see your own identity being sold back to you. And so your identity becomes for you a kind of an artwork that you're negotiating with the corporations. And then that becomes an object for, for, for your art itself. And I think that that's, you know, that, that becomes 
um, a recurrent theme. And I think that was uh, that basically the whole post-internet moment was exactly that. <laughs> it was like, we're yeah. going to take a bunch of stuff that's like being sold as our culture and then repackage it as a uh, commentary on how it's being sold to us as our culture. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep talking. No, but it, it makes me think of like one that if we've entered this sort of intense period of consolidation of intellectual property, that there are probably going to be resistant strategies that come back around cyclically like we've seen, you know, um, but also, you know, Art Club reminded me of the other collective that came out of, you know, Cooper, you know, Bruce High Quality Foundation, which, you know, sort of tried to deal with their identity by being an anonymous collective, but also channeled this energy and sort of attitude um, with maybe a disaffection with arts education and the institutionalization of art and sort of ended up becoming, you know, a kind of free educational model, mm -hmm. um, different than the kind of corporate critique of GAP. And, and that kind of like image consciousness. But, you know, as a kind of collective, it also sort of imploded in on itself, you know, and sort of ended, you know, sort of where it began. Uh, there's no more free Bruce high quality free university. The collective doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and I don't know, I, I'd be, you know, interested in a longer discussion at some other point of like the distinctions or the differences between Art Club 2000 and how they more resemble something like K-Hole or DIS and their relationship to Bruce High Quality Foundation, you know, which um, I guess just kind of took a different tact on where they were going to focus their efforts of like critique. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot of similarities um, and a lot of differences, uh, but I think some of the similarities come from um, the attempting to kind of periodically occupy the mm -hmm. position of alternative. And um, also in the case of Bruce Quality and Art Club 2000, I think are very, are a little more similar to each other than, than to the later ones you mentioned, mm -hmm. in the sense that there's a very strange tone to both those initiatives, uh, the earlier initiatives, um, where they move between irony and sincerity really in a, in a pretty, in a way that's hard to negotiate. Like you, 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 and, and that's, that's, I think an effect of, of, you know, um, trying to resolve a contradiction between, you know, like, um, between, between uh, being taken seriously and, being uh, and being uh, and occupying the space that's there for you to inhabit as like generational representative or as like um, uh, as yeah yeah I don't know it's possible I, our club two thousand is 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 just interesting to me just you know like. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there is a nostalgia aspect to it. I mean, it, it, and there is, I like games, you know? <laughs> I like party games. And um, I, I, the kind of gamified social interactions that they kind of produced as an art form, um, like, resonate with my current state of isolation you know because <laughs> you're looking for ways to 
have meaningful interactions with, with people in, 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 in these kind of alienated spaces <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that in these alien, these alienated communications platform, that kind of puts us all in the position of, or uh, it puts a lot of people in the position of you know, trying to figure out how you be together without really being together. Um, and, and so yeah. The art world feels like one of these places where I'm like sort of better able to identify um, nostalgia than in other places. Like, you know, um, so, although I guess it's sort of a, a condition that's in a lot of, replicates itself. Like, I just feel like there's a lot of like music and ephemera that just like never really goes away anymore. You know, you so missing it is us, like is a kind of more complicated thing um, to nail down like what nostalgia is when it's, when it's still like at your fingertips at any given time. Um, whereas I feel like the art world is like not so built out that things can like sort of disappear and reappear um, a little bit, but. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I guess that's another thing why I write about art club, because I, I do like things that are a little bit historicized, you know? I think it's really hard to, to say what the art of your own time is, you know, which is the, which are the important things. Um, and, uh, and, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's easier to like, look at things that have a little bit of history and kind of judge, judge where they sit within the balance of, the balance yeah. of what's important. I think that might be a, a sort of, good place for us to uh, call this episode of Explain Me in part because, you know, on some level, I think we'd wanted to talk more about some of the few shows we'd actually seen this year, but it is also a really difficult year to give serious consideration to, to shows that people barely saw in person, you know? Um, and that, you know, it's also hard to look at it in the middle of a pandemic and, and really understand the implications um, as we're sort of still moving through them, you know? I think there's a real challenge in, I mean, we didn't see very many things in person. I feel like I personally saw a lot of stuff online um, and my ability to take the things that I have seen online and kind of process them and figure out where they fit is very limited, I think, compared to what happens when I see something online? Oh my God, it, I, I just, I really realized, you know, for a while I was trying to write a piece about uh, augmented reality art. Um, there's a lot of attempts to make augmented reality art or even like the art fairs have augmented reality components where you like can tap a thing and you like see how it would look on your wall, which is really funny in my tiny little apartment because it's like immense you know, beyond Melgard paintings or something completely dwarfed my, my, um, my, uh, my, my bed. Um, and, you know, I just realized that, that, well, A, I realized that like online culture, I think people, you know, online culture always is like organized around metaphors, you know, like desktop files, you know, so it's like the metaphor of like file cabinets. And I think when people, started out with internet art you know people thought about it as a painting essentially you know like these are images you're looking at or things you're contemplating and a lot of online viewing rooms are still organized around the idea that it's like 
online stuff is something you're contemplating. And I just really realized this year because of the pandemic is that like, you know, culture, I mean, the art online is really almost event and always an event, you know, like that, like that's how it functions more as a performance of a moment or like a conversation, a social, you know, like certain kind of like um, energies move along the, 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 the pathways of the internet and like light something up and and that and that just like yeah like I said a little bit earlier like realizing that then makes me realize you know like why online experiences of art have such a difficult time like feeling meaningful to me because it's like the there's a lot more going on than just contemplation when you're in a museum or in a in in a, in a gallery there's all this other social stuff and embodied stuff and and um and even just the act of leaving one space and going to another on the kind of pilgrimage of going to the museum or going to the gallery is part of what the artwork is it's like having to do that and uh god that's so much of this year has been like having that that um feeling very palpably you know fundamentally i think that's the difference between like um watching a movie um, and an anim and animated GIF, like a movie is an event. You have to press play, it takes place in time. Like an animated GIF just takes place indefinitely, um, mm -hmm. which is why when they changed animated GIFs to like things that you had to press play <laughs> on, they ruined them. Ben, thank you so much for coming yeah, to the show. It was really fun talking to you. Um, and uh, we hope to have you on again. Ah, anytime. Great to talk and um, have this fake weird social experience with you. And <laughs> uh, uh, happy new year and uh, see you next year. All, right. All of those things. Bye-bye. <laughs>